0: Please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to our sermon text this morning from Matthew chapter five, Matthew five verses thirty-three through thirty-seven. We're in a series of studies in the Sermon on the Mount collection, or rather, a uh, series of chapters uh, Matthew five, six, and seven, uh, and capturing. Uh, teaching that Jesus gave uh, primarily to his disciples. There was a larger crowd at hand, uh, but Jesus uh, instructing his disciples. And uh, in this particular portion, Jesus is interacting with the law. We just read earlier the Ten Commandments. Jesus uh, interacting with the Ten Commandments and other teaching in the Old Testament that over the course of time had not become irrelevant, certainly had not, ceased to be uh, authoritative or binding, but had been interpreted in such a way almost to stand it on its head and make it say, or at least make it allow, the opposite of what it was intended. And so today we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Hear the word of God. Jesus said again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, For you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let us pray. Lord, we turn to Your Word. We thank You that it is true. It is truth. Father, we pray that uh, as we study it, we would be better instructed in your law, in your truth. But more than that, Lord, we would be pricked in our conscience for our sin, our disobedience, but also motivated in our hearts, Lord, to live by your word as your people. So we pray you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've seen, as Jesus has been interacting with the commands of God, he does not abrogate them, as he's already said in something of an introduction to this section. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. However, he came to fulfill the law of God, not the traditions of men. And it seems that the leaders in Jesus' day had become confused about which was which. And so it's very very important that as we hear Jesus say, but I say to you, he's not contradicting what the Old Testament said. He's not undermining what the Ten Commandments said. He's not in any way relegating it to secondhand status. In fact, he is bringing out the law of God, the commands of God. He's scraping off the barnacles of human tradition. He's wiping off the inch or two layer of dust that has fallen on them because of disuse. And he's saying, here is what the law means. Here is what the law intended. Or, we might put it another way, since Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, as if Jesus was saying, folks, this is what I meant when I gave you the law. And so Jesus himself, the divine lawgiver, explains, comments upon, expounds, and applies what he originally intended when he gave to his people the law. Well, we've looked at several different subjects today. We are looking at the whole question of speaking the truth. Uh, I've entitled this On Oaths. The ESV simply has a subheading there, Oaths or Vows. The whole question of truth, truth in speech, truth in our communication, And so let's look at what we have here. First of all, again, we begin with the law that Jesus quotes, the law that he's referring to. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not quoting any particular Commandment, any single commandment that we might refer to in the scripture as he has with the other teachings, whether from uh, the Ten Commandments or in the case of the, the teaching on adultery from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 24. Rather, he was referring to the general teaching of the Old Testament or the teaching you would find, in other words, in different places. You could think, for example, of uh, Exodus chapter 20, where we do find the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, where he refers to not bearing false witness. That one's obvious. But also uh, in verse 7, where he refers to not taking the name of the Lord in vain. Now, we tend to think of that, and I think the NIV actually mistran- or translates it, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. I think that's certainly implied. But I think the primary sense of taking the name of the Lord in vain means taking the name of the Lord in terms of sealing one's oath or vow without the intention to keep it or treating it carelessly and not keeping it, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, there's also, uh, for example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, which picks up on that theme. Leviticus 19:12, you shall not swear by my name falsely says the Lord. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So the idea here and in other places in the Old Testament is that uh, when you take a vow, when you seal that vow with the name of the Lord in an oath that you are to keep it, you are to speak the truth. And it's that teaching in the Old Testament that Jesus is picking up on. And applying, or as he summarizes it here, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So that's the teaching, uh, the command that Jesus is referring to here. Now, we need to think second about the, the Pharisees' distortion of the law. What did they do with it? Well, we have seen that the way that they treated God's law was to reflect merely on the words or merely on the superficial level, whereas Jesus is concerned with the depth of the teaching as it applies not just to outward behavior but to the heart. Or they would take the commandment and they would focus simply on the procedure. For example, last time we looked at uh, the whole question of, of, of divorce, marriage, divorce, adultery. And Deuteronomy 24, which says if a man divorces his wife, he shall give her a certificate of divorce. If, if he marries another woman and divorces her, he can't, he can't go back and marry his original wife. Well, what they heard was you need a certificate of divorce. It really doesn't matter what you do as long as you follow the right procedure. Which reduces this to a loophole. Not the true intention that God had to accommodate human fallenness and sinfulness in the question of marriage and divorce. Now, that's exactly what has happened here. The distortion of the law was where God says you shall not swear falsely. They thought, well, you know, what's important here is not telling the truth. It's the formula that you use when you make a vow, when you take an oath. That's what's important. And they actually came down to the point where... The whole legalistic, the whole code in Jesus' day, which was summarized in the Mishnah, uh, expounded this and, and put this in writing, where they had one whole section given over to the question of oaths. And, and, and how, when, when is an oath binding, and when is it not? And they had such rules as this. One rabbi who said, well, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by the oath. But if you swear to Jerusalem, well, different story. Of course you have to do what you said that you would do. And so this whole thing degenerated into a series of rules that uh, were really almost trivial, laughable, and yet were taken seriously. And people in all seriousness could say, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't swear to Jerusalem. I swore by it, so I, I really can't uh, do what I promised that I would do. Jesus takes up this, and it kind of sheds a little more light on it in Matthew chapter 23, uh, which you may know is a chapter that Jesus pronounces woes, uh, God's judgment on the Pharisees for different reasons, and this is one of them. Uh, Matthew 23:16, Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. That's Jesus. That's what he calls people who fall into this kind of thinking. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. Again, making these, these subtle and ultimately meaningless distinctions to justify lying, to justify breaking their word. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And he goes on and and denounces them for, for this kind of casuistry, this kind of loophole finding that God has no patience for and certainly does not find acceptable. Now, that kind of thing is not unknown in our day, although we sort of relegate it, at least in its overt form, to childish behavior. Yes, I promised to do something. Fingers were crossed, though. So... I don't have to do it, right? Or we have our own form of vows, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, in making such oaths as these uh, to try to emphasize, at least on a childish level, the truthful, truthfulness of what we're saying. More about that in just a minute. But we recognize the silliness of that in a sense, and yet is it possible that on a more subtle, maybe a little more refined level, We ourselves find ways of not keeping the vows that we have made, of not standing by the promise that we have given to another. And so that's something of the kind of distortion, the twisted thinking that Jesus was addressing when he takes up his teaching here. And that's important to know that uh, because that's the context. That's the problem that Jesus was addressing, the sinful human tendency... To find loopholes to, to not have to fulfill obligations that we have made. Now, what is Jesus' positive teaching here? What is the true intention that the Lord had in mind in that teaching in the Old Testament? What, what is it calling for? What does the Lord expect from you and from me today? Well, in the first place, Jesus begins to question the, the formulaic thinking, the formulas that they had, again, the distinctions that they make. Jesus says in verse 34, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, by the earth, for it's his footstool, by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Jesus is saying, don't, don't take an oath by these different things as if somehow that that excuses you from keeping your word. Because Ultimately, God is in all of those things. Ultimately, God pervades this whole earth. Anything that you name, the altar, the temple, uh, whatever it might be, uh, even your grandmother's grave, uh, God is there. It's his. He owns it all. He rules over it all. He's present in it all. And you're not evading the responsibility for truth when you simply say, well, I swore on this and not on the Lord. So it's okay if I don't keep my word. The first thing Jesus does is to demolish that kind of thinking that found loopholes and excuses in the formula that is used. You can't avoid some reference to God for the the whole earth is the Lord's. As the psalm says, it's the fullness thereof. You cannot eliminate it. You cannot get rid of it. All of it is before the Lord. And in all of it, you are accountable to him. For the things that you promise. But Jesus goes beyond merely uh, tearing down their confidence in the form, the procedure of the vows that they have taken, to what's really more important. Remember the question of divorce, they asked Jesus, Well, what do you say about divorce, Jesus? You know, do you take Hillel's more liberal, relaxed approach, or do you take Shammai's more conservative, restrictive approach to divorce? And Jesus doesn't even really address that. He said, let's go back even farther. Let's go back to marriage. Let's talk about marriage, not divorce. Now, that's the real issue. What was God's design in marriage? Not how, how can I acceptably get a divorce? But what was marriage intended to be? That's exactly what Jesus does here. Now You could talk about the formula of the oath, the form of the words that this oath is, is contained in, but that's not really the point. The point is truth. The point is to be someone Who says what you mean, mean what you say, and stand by it. Now that's where he says, he says uh, in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. Don't put your confidence in the form of the, the oath. And then in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, be a person of integrity, be a person whose word is his bond, be a person who can be counted on to do and stand by the thing that you have said. You see, that was God's intention. Not the procedure, but the end. Not the form of the vow, but the truthfulness and the sincerity and intention that you meant what you said, and you will stand by and follow through on what you said. You see, that was God's intention. That was the point. That's where righteousness comes in here. Not looking for the loophole. Of fulfilling our vows. Now, it raises a number of questions, doesn't it here? Does this mean that we should never take oaths or vows? There are those who have taken that position. the Quakers, in the days of the Reformation, the Anabaptists, uh, took Jesus' words at face value here, I think without regard to the context, and said, well, no, you should never take any kind of formal oath or vow. Well, I think that's going beyond what Jesus is saying here. After all, if you find in in the Scriptures, that uh, in the Old Testament, that it permits oaths, vows, even in God's name. Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. Any number of times, Paul calls God as His witness. For example, Romans 1, 9, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you. In my prayers and, and any number of times, God, Paul calls the Lord God as his witness. He's in essence making an oath, saying God himself will testify to the truth of what I am saying to you. God himself swears oaths. Uh, Genesis nine, verses nine through eleven. After the flood, uh, where the Lord gives the sign of the rainbow and vows to them never again will he destroy the earth with a flood We have other other passages in Scripture where the same thing seems to be in effect. In the New Testament, I'll give you just one example. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is before us. And there are other references to God's sealing his words with an oath. In fact, a covenant with the shedding of blood is itself a visible oath. It's, it's binding. It's a covenant. It's an agreement, a contract, in many cases, sealed with blood. As a testimony to the truth of it, the, the significance saying, if I do not fulfill my promise, may it be done to me, as it was done to this animal. It's pretty binding agreement, wouldn't you say? And so does this mean we in a court of law, for instance, should never be sworn to, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? No. It doesn't mean you it, it certainly doesn't restrict you from doing that, although you should tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, even without an oath to do so. It doesn't mean, for example, that an elder or deacon can't take ordination vows. It doesn't mean we can't take marriage vows. What those things do is impress upon the oath taker and the witnesses the solemnity, the seriousness, the binding nature of the promises that are made. Christ is not ruling those things out here. What he is saying, the point of the teaching is that even without having to Swear an oath of some kind or promise you know, across my heart or swear on my grandmother's grave or whatever. We shouldn't have to do that to be known as people who tell the truth and who stand by what we say. Well, another question that might come to mind here, does this mean lying is always inappropriate? <laughs> Tricky question. Big ethical question. Say, well, of course, lying wrong. Well, remember Rahab, the prostitute, Jericho, uh, Joshua chapter 2, when she hid the spies who came in? And she was asked point blank, those men come here? And she said, well, they did, but they took off that way. When in fact, she was hiding them in the roof of her house. The Bible never rebukes her for that. In fact, Hebrews commends her, not explicitly for lying, but it commends her for welcoming the spies from Israel. Tricky uh, ethical question. Is it right to lie to deceive the enemy in time of wartime? Is it right to lie to protect the life of another? Is it right to deceive your opponent, for example, in a a game? Many games, deception is part of it. Football, you don't want the other team to know what you're going to do. You try to trick them, whatever. Uh, Well, the rules are known. We know how the game is played. But in wartime or other situations, we'll give you something to talk about over Sunday dinner today. Uh, But what Jesus' point is here, apart from the exceptional cases, the rare, I might add, and exceptional cases, often uh, never happening, uh, is that Jesus expects us to be people who, simply put, tell the truth. If we say yes, it means yes, and people know we mean yes. If we say no, it means no, and people know that we mean no. We're not equivocating. We're not saying one thing and intending another. Or we're not leaving out information with the intention to deceive others. Now, you have to be careful. This doesn't mean that we have to always say everything that's on our mind. You know, it's odd the kinds of things that stick in our minds, the the memories that we have over the years, even from childhood. I wish that many of my memories were loftier than they are, but I remember reading a Superman comic book one time. And in this particular story, there was some, some tie with the planet Krypton where on this particular day... Superman had to, had to tell the truth. Well, he ought to tell the truth anyway. But he had to say what he was thinking. And so, you know, it was the kind of thing, what do you think of this dress? Well, I think it makes you look fat. And he was offending people, and they were insulted. They, they Just taking offense that he was being so blunt. Well, you don't want to tell white lies, but that also doesn't mean you, you have to ignore social graces and say everything that may be on your mind. Uh, we do want to be truth tellers, but that doesn't mean we have to necessarily say every word, there, every thought, that pops into our mind. We also want to be loving and gracious toward people, not deceitful, uh, but also not necessarily being unduly blunt and uh, tactless and unkind. Jesus is here addressing the ordinary interaction of life, interpersonal relationships. We need to be trustworthy. Uh, Psalm 15 says the righteous man keeps his word even to his own hurt. There may be times when we need to fulfill an obligation, even if we don't gain an advantage and maybe accrue a disadvantage by doing so simply because it is our word. If someone would let us out of a contract or an agreement or an arrangement, that may be OK. Say, well, would it be OK if we changed this or if I dropped out of this, it's something different. And they agree. Uh that's fine. But you know the sort of thing I'm talking about. We need to be people who basically have integrity to be trustworthy. As Jesus puts it here, let our yes be yes, let our no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Or another rendering of that could be from the evil one. And you know, as Christians, we are called to be like God. In fact, in Ephesians 5, 1, uh, Paul instructs us to imitate our father as beloved children, as children who are loved, want to be like their father. We want to be like our heavenly father in terms of our character. Well, of course, God's character is, is multifaceted. But one of the things scripture tells us about God is that he cannot lie. God who cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Think about it. You are never less like God. You are never less Christ like than when you lie. In fact, you are never more like the devil than when you lie. The devil, whom Jesus referred to as the liar and the father of lies. You are never less like the Lord. You are never more like Satan than when you were deceiving, when you were telling a lie. Conversely, you are never more like your Father in heaven. You are never more like Christ than when you tell the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that in our sin we believe the lie, and all too often we tell the lie. But Lord, we pray that You would forgive us. We confess Our deception, deceitfulness, our lying as falsehood is a sin against you. And we pray for the blood of Christ to atone for us, to cover us, for you would forgive us. But Lord, we pray that we would be known as people whose word can be counted on. People who simply speak the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.